following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Our anchor text today, as I told you, is going to be 2 Kings 5, uh, starting in verse 1. But I want to establish a couple things quickly from Luke 24, which is where we were last week. So if you went to 2 Kings and you just want to park there and listen, that's fine. Uh, If you're a super Bible flipper and you can hold two spots, maybe you've got ribbons in your Bible like I do, which I highly recommend. Uh, I think they're great. Uh, You can also turn to Luke 24 to see what we're talking about. But uh, if if you missed last week, particularly in light of where we're headed, uh, I'm going to ask you to please go back and listen to that sermon. I mean, that's kind of always the premise is, you know, (laughs) if, if you miss, our hope is that you're able to go back and catch that because we believe... The Word of God is living and active and is a great catalyst for our growth as Christians. And so, uh, and, and us as a church body, I believe the Lord speaks to us through His Word. And so, it's kind of always the deal, but particularly because we're going to be building off for the next few weeks what we started last week, it would be helpful for you to go back and check that out. But for those of you who weren't here so that you're not lost today, uh, here, here's the basic premise of what we saw in Luke 24. You've got two disciples they're walking the road to Emmaus after Jesus is crucified, all right? And they're sad, and, and they're talking about all that had happened. And then the risen Christ meets them on the road. They don't know it's him at first, and, and he then proceeds to lead them in what may be the most epic Bible study in all of history, where he goes through the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, and he shows them how those Scriptures we're pointing to him, okay? uh, a fact that had been largely missed, unfortunately, to that point. The Bible then records that he eats a meal with them, and, and, and when he breaks the bread for the meal, the, the, the inhibition they had upon their eyes to be able to recognize that it was him that was lifted, and uh, as soon as they realize that, man, this has been Jesus the whole time, the Bible says he vanishes, which is wild. You know, Jesus at this point, resurrected Christ, he's just disappearing and popping up places. So it gets real exciting here towards the end of each of the Gospels when that happens. Like, whoa, that's wild. So what I want to do, though, now that you kind of have an idea, and, and so part of the major premise of last week's sermon on Easter and, and where we're headed was this idea that you know these, these men kind of look at each other when they realize it was Jesus all along, and they, they say to one another, like, Weren't, were our hearts not burning within us? when we walked on the road and he was explaining the scriptures to us, right? And so that, that kind of was the whole thrust and premise. And last week we took time ourselves to walk through some of the Hebrew scriptures and try to imagine together what some of that sermon from Christ could have looked like and, and why it would stir these disciples to the point of saying that their hearts burned within them. And, and we laid out the premise that that is really the right reaction for us to understand the scope and breadth and and depth and beauty of God's plan of redemption to begin to see, even in glimpses, that unfold God's faithfulness be proven true over and over again, that that a right response is a burning heart, is a heart ablaze. Amen. Do one of you believe that? I heard one. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. It's... There's sometimes inhibitions to that, though. There's sometimes roadblocks in the way, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that. We're going to be honest about that today. So let's, let's t- first of all, just look at what 
these guys were talking about on the road, okay? So I am in uh, Luke 24, or I'm about to be. See, is that where this red ribbon's at? No, it's in First Peter. I was over there poking around in Peter, apparently. All right, First Peter, that's not where I want to be. Luke 24, almost there, bingo. All right, so looking at verse 19, okay? So Jesus, Jesus pops up, he says, and he said to them, what things? Because they basically popped off, Cleopas pops off to Jesus and says, are you the only guy that doesn't know what happened? Ooh, Cleopas, chill out. Okay, but Jesus, Jesus in, in standard patient fashion says, what things? Gives him a chance, gives him some rope to maybe hang himself. But uh, they, they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people. Okay? So right there, and then 20, and so... He was, he was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word, in the sight of God and all the people. He was. Okay? And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. So the first thing I want you to see in verse 19 and 20 of Luke 24 is that these guys are sad and they are anxious about the past. The first thing they're citing are, are past things that have happened, and that's affecting the way that they are feeling in, in the present. Okay. The second thing I want you to see is in if I go then to verse 21, the next thing they say is, but we were hoping, so they killed him, but we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So that means they're also sad and anxious now about the future as a result of what they can see. So they're, they're sad and anxious about the past, they're sad and anxious about the future. Second half of verse 21, indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. And so there we see them even referencing the, the, the sadness of the reality of where they're standing right in that moment. And so they're, they're sad and anxious about the present. These guys are having a rough time thinking about the past, thinking about the present, and thinking about the future. But I think it's interesting if we go to look at the way Christ comes in and begins to answer these things, Last week, we stopped at, at verse 35, but I want to pick up with you at verse 36 to see what happens next. Because what, what happened, the, the two disciples rode to Emmaus, Jesus breaks the bread, they're like, oh, it's Jesus. Poof, he's gone. The Bible says they got up that hour. They didn't wait. They had just done the seven-mile journey. They got up, and they beat feet back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the apostles what they had just experienced, okay? And so... We pick up there. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Jesus is back, popping up on people again, okay? Stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. Man, I'm glad that was his first words to this group of, of haggard apostles. That means something to me. I don't know if it means anything to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. I bet they were startled and frightened. And he said to them, okay, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me, see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Again, the, the, I talked to you about last week this idea that you know, if, you, if you wanted to kind of start a huckster religion, you, you, you wouldn't peg yourself, paint yourself in this corner. We're not claiming some kind of just spiritual resurrection here. Jesus wants them to know, I got flesh and bones. Jesus wants them to know, hey, you got something to eat? You ever seen a spirit eat something? 
Hand me that fish right there. Right? It's all, some of it's even, I think it's even funny. Because, you know, these guys are all freaked out. Jesus had rolled around with these guys, been on a camping trip for three years. Like, they're friends. You know what I mean? He's like, you guys, here, give me some fish. Let me show you something. Okay? And he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these, and this is, this is where I start to see a response to where those guys were, they, they were concerned, anxious, sad about the, the past, the present, and the future. I think Jesus even responds to all three. Verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the first thing he addresses, and what he shows us is that Christ's resurrection means we can rejoice over the past. Even though that for these guys, up until Jesus comes and, and kind of makes things clear for them, it, to them it looked bad. It, it, it looked like only problems in the past. It looked like the scriptures they were hoping to be fulfilled were not going to be fulfilled. They, they couldn't see from their vantage point the way Christ could, but thankfully he's gracious and he, he shows us as much as we can see like he sees and understands. So Christ responds, first of all, to their anxiety, their sadness about the past by talking about, you know, these are the words I said to you before. This is, we're talking about the law of Moses and we're talking about the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. This was all from the past. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. The guys on the road to Emmaus told Jesus, it's the third day since all of this happened, right? And so right there, we're talking about Jesus is addressing to them, guys, right here in the present, you're watching the faithfulness of God unfold. So what does that mean? That means Christ's resurrection, it shows us we can rejoice in the present, right? For the past, for those guys, it looked bad. In the present, it wasn't looking good. Right now, as it's unfolding in real time, Jesus responds to that. Guys, it is the third day, and I told, you, I told you before I was going to rise the third day. I know you didn't get it, but do you, are you starting to get it now? Amen. Okay? And then we see verse 47 through 49. He says, and, the repentance for forgive, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be, would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold... I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus, in his faithfulness, realized these guys were anxious and sad about what had happened in the past, or their perception of it, what was going on right now, real time, and they were also anxious and sad about what now the future looked like for them. Jesus comes and responds to each one of those things in turn. Did you see it in the last one? Repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, right? So now Jesus is even giving them a forward look of how, first of all, I want to show you guys, God's promises have been fulfilled, they are being fulfilled, and they're going to be fulfilled. Amen? Okay. That sets us up, kind of, it, it helps us to understand some of the problems, some of the ways I think we get hemmed up sometimes when it comes to rejoicing in our risen Savior, uh, particularly to kind of summarize everything I just showed. I wanted, to, I wanted you to have a scriptural basis for us looking at it the way we're looking at it. This isn't just, you know, I didn't, I didn't read a sociology book and say, oh, okay, well, people struggle with the past, the present, and the future. 
This, this, is what, this is where these disciples were at as they were processing what they knew about the situation. They were freaked out about the past. They were freaked out about right now and pretty bummed out about the future, okay? Jesus brings an answer to all of those. His resurrection brings an answer to all of those. But what are those roadblocks? If we can be honest, that, that maybe keep us from rejoicing in our risen Savior, regardless of what time frame we are considering. Well, here's... I hope you'll be honest with me because I'm trying to say this is true for me sometimes, that pains from the past, anxieties in the present, and fears about the future, those often are like wet blankets that the enemy tries to use to tamp down and try to stop our hearts from being ablaze as we rejoice in our risen Savior. Can anyone else relate to that? Pains from the past. Anxieties in the present or fears about the future, sometimes being used by the enemy and sometimes being allowed to be used by the enemy by us to, to be a wet blanket that snuffs out those, those passionate flames of, uh, that are, of excitement and, and, and of, of joy even, just simple joy at the fact that Jesus is, in, is risen and what all of that speaks to, to what all of that speaks to. It's Speaks to basically everything, right? Because it shows us that God is God. You can, when he says something, he's going to do it, right? That he is mighty and well able to do all that he has declared he will do. He's a promise keeper. It means, it means so many things that, that come and apply right now to what we're looking at. And so we're going to unpack each of these over the next few weeks, starting with the past. Starting with the past and how pains from the past can sometimes... <clears throat> Work against us, being people that live with hearts ablaze, full of passion, gratitude, thankfulness, joy at the beauty of God, the power of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the glory of God. All of the many reasons we have for being passionately excited about his name and his fame in the earth. And so the big idea here is that when we talk about our hearts being ablaze with rejoicing over our risen Savior. We're not talking about some temporary emotional high on Easter. Is that all right to say? You guys on board with that? I hope so. Because sometimes that can be cultivated, unfortunately. Uh, a big woohoo, and then... <laughs> but, but I believe that the totality of what the Scriptures show us is... And I'm not saying that the Lord isn't gracious and merciful in, in the seasons and highs and lows of life. Please don't get me wrong. But what I am saying is that whether it feels like to us right now a mountaintop or a valley, whether it feels like a season of plenty or a season of lack, whether it feels like there's much rain or it is very dry, pick your analogy. We have enough to stand in a place of rejoicing about our risen Savior in all those circumstances. Amen. So the big idea is not some emotional high on Easter. We are talking about a daily way of living, a fitting and freeing and altogether proper response to the reality that Jesus did die in our place for our sins, but that he is now alive a fitting and a proper response. And part of the overall premise, it comes from that idea that 
as those brothers on the road to Emmaus begin to have the Hebrew scriptures unpacked for them by Jesus, the master himself, as he began to show them in more, in more vibrancy than they had ever even come close to understanding before, the power and faithfulness of God. What happened? He said, man, our hearts burned within us. And what I'm saying today, friends, is we, we've got, these guys had whatever was left of the walk right? From Jerusalem to Emmaus with with Jesus. I I, I expect that was a fairly long Bible study, but we've got now the entirety of God's word assembled as a blessing to us. We, we get to stand in a privileged place of, we, these guys, it was, it was just hitting them for the first time that day. They're, they're just trying to begin to process all of this, man. We, and that's the problem is sometimes it's, it seems like the longer we go in this and, and, and sometimes somehow the, the, the more of the truth of God is, is revealed to us that we, we have this tendency towards kind of slumping into ruts of whatever, ingratitude, sometimes discontentment, sometimes just a lackadaisical apathetic approach to how wonderful this is. These guys, the first taste they got of getting a look at the wonder of God's plan of redemption and what that means about who he is, all that it means about who he is, and their hearts burned within them. And what I'm encouraging you towards, what I'm saying you can, you can have, what I'm hoping you're not hearing is <clears throat> some legalistic like, uh, well, if your heart's not ablaze, then get it ablaze. No, man, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to invite you to a great privilege. I'm trying to invite you to something beautiful and better than anything lesser that we would settle for, Right? I mean, that's part of, that's, you guys know the quote. C.S. Lewis said, part of our problem is we're like children playing in the mud and we don't know that all the time God wants to take us to a, a vacation at the beach. Now he used more British words, so I just gave you a little bit of American translation there. You know, he said a holiday at the sea, but half you won't know what that means. So he's talking about a vacay, right, at the beach. And that's, that's part of our problem, man. Don't you know that about yourself? That sometimes you'll settle for mud pies when God's got something way better, man. So I'm, I'm, ask, I'm asking to believe that. And I'm asking you to step into the beauty of what that means. This isn't a scolding, it's an invitation. Amen. So keep that in mind. Even as we get going, if it sounds like a scolding, it's still an invitation, I promise. But there may, you know, sometimes the line's blurry. Amen. So now that we have a premise, the foundation of which was laid last week and this morning, let's look together at the next layer and how rejoicing in our risen Savior affects the way we see and feel about the past. So I asked you to uh, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. I hope you're there. I do have a ribbon there. Bingo. All right. 2 Kings chapter 5, I'm going to read you verses 1 through 19. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Okay? Just so everyone's, make sure we're all on the same page. This meant he had leprosy. Okay? So leprosy in this time, basically a death sentence. It was a uh, disease that oftentimes started on, as red spots on the surface of the skin, but it would ultimately spread to other tissues and basically meant the slow deterioration of the body until death. Uh, there was no natural cure. Basically, if you had leprosy, oftentimes you were cast out because some forms of it were highly contagious. Uh, and so oftentimes you were cast out, kind of ostracized. Um, for someone to touch someone that had leprosy, they were considered then unclean. And so this, this is what we're dealing with and, and what Naaman was dealing with. Now, 
The Arameans had gone out in bands and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, <clears throat> so this, this, is the, this is what I'm saying is, and what the Bible's saying here is, that Naaman is of these Arameans. They would go and do raids on Israel, okay? And so they brought this little girl back, right? And, and she now basically is a servant to Naaman's wife. And so the little girl says, she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. And then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make a lie that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he was seeking a quarrel against me. Is there anybody else? I struggle. I'm just going to just confess to you right now. Whenever the Bible talks about someone like tearing their clothes in anguish, I can't not think about Hulk Hogan. It's just like, that's where my mind goes. So like, the king of Aram's got like the mustache and stuff in my mind. I, Lord help, pray for me. I don't know. I just, I'm sure that's not right. But anyways, <clears throat> just be honest. So, <laughs> so basically the king gets this letter and he thinks, he thinks basically the, the, the king of Aram's trying to pick a fight. He's basically thinking he's sending this guy and, and then he's obviously not going to be able to do it and that's going to be a pretense, okay, for war. That's where the king of Israel's at. But it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. You understand what's happening? Naaman wants to pay. What's Elisha say? Not a chance. Okay? It's important. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He, that's Elisha, said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. 
Now, just so that you're not sitting there wondering, we have this transition from Naaman trying to give Elisha something, basically to pay for the miracle, then to a request that he wants to pack two mules full of dirt and take them with him. And then he ties that to the fact that he now understands there is only a God in Israel. Let me explain that to you in case the rest of what I say, you're going to be sitting there going, what does Naaman want dirt for, right? Like, what's this guy about? So basically, in that time, by and large, the belief was that whatever God or deity a a people worship, that it was tied very much to the land, okay? That's a lot of why uh, you'll see, if you look back in history, the the Egyptians were not... uh, they were not prone to go and try to conquer other places or, or uh, inhabit other places because they believed very much that with that Nile River and, and what, what the gods had kind of set up for them there, that it was, it was tied to the physical location. And so part of what Naaman's thinking is, okay, <laughs> I know this God's real now, right? So I'm going to take some of the dirt from this land, take it home, probably with the idea of building an altar so that he can worship the God of Israel as opposed to the God of the Arameans, okay? But what I find very interesting is that, and then he knows part of his job is to go into the temple with the king and, and, the, temp, and, and the king leans on him and they, they bow together. And so he's explaining to Elisha that, you know, my heart's not going to be in that, but that, that's part of my duty. I just find it interesting that really the presence of God is not tied to the land. Him taking dirt is kind of a superstitious thing. And, and even this, this idea, I could see I could have seen this go different. Instead of Elisha saying to him, go in peace, I think it's really interesting. You know, he could have said, no, you can't do that. Like, you're going to you're gonna have to stand aside. Who, who are you going to serve, right? Some Joshua type stuff, right? You, you're either going to serve God or you're going to go in the house of Ramon and do the thing. But, but he doesn't. He just says, go in peace. I just think that maybe says something to us instructive about the reality of, of meeting people where they're at. And I'm not talking about being spineless. I'm not talking about speaking, not speaking truth at all, of course. We speak the truth in love. But there's also seems to be this realization in the part of the prophet that this guy just had his world rocked by the God of Israel and that a process had clearly begun. There's a, there's a clear transition here in the posture of Naaman, is there not? So God's begun a work in him, and it's interesting that Elisha was willing to send him off, let him take dirt, even though that really doesn't mean anything. I have to assume the prophet knowing that the work that God began in Naaman, God will be faithful to finish. And so sometimes you may have people come in your life or, or you may be somebody that's in this position <laughs> at, at, probably at different times. But if, if, if you're beginning to try to share with someone the goodness of the Lord or, or you're, you're dealing with someone that's close enough to you that you're having discussions about places where maybe there's room for them to grow, um, I just want to encourage you to don't be a coward, but remember Elisha and how he dealt with Naaman and understand that you're not God. You're not the savior. And that's really helpful, actually. I'm not really trying to cut you down with that. I'm trying to set you free because sometimes we get this complex of like, oh, if I don't say all the right things and do it exactly the right way, like they're, we're going to lose them forever. Well, hold on, man. When did you think you were God? You got, you got it messed up somewhere. You don't have to carry that weight, right? Faithfulness is our responsibility. Fruitfulness is up to God. That'll help you if you grab a hold of it. I mean, that all is under the presumption that you're actively engaged in disciple making and like speaking truth and love into people's life, which we are, if we're not, we're really stoked about getting started doing that. Right, Love City Church? There you go. Amen. I know most of you are, but I also know that for some of you, fears like what we just talked about keep you out of it. And I want you set free from those fears. 
You don't have to be Jesus. He's got it. (laughs) You don't have to be the Holy Spirit. He's got that. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. So what, what else do we see here? The first premise I want us to look at is, all right, ultimately what, what, when it comes to what stands stumbling blocks that stand in the way of us rejoicing in a risen Savior, walking in the newness of life, that uh, being people of the resurrection, shall we say, that, that we are called to walk in, it, it ultimately and oftentimes does come back down to sin, right? God wants us to walk in life, but the wages of sin, according to Romans, is death. Thankfully, the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Interesting that uh, Elisha wouldn't take any payment from Naaman. What's the Old Testament got to do with the New Testament? Oh, so many things, right? I didn't even, you know, any of you that were here last week when, when, we, when we took our tour through the Old Testament, go back and listen. I didn't even mention Naaman. Oh, dude, I, I could have hung out right here all day, and we are a little bit today, but there's even more. Right? There's so much gold I got to leave here, man. You understand? That's probably the hardest part of my job. Is figuring out what gold am I going to leave on the ground? It's, I never have a problem, you're not going to be surprised by this one, having enough to say. What are you laughing about? No, no I get, but I'm, I'm serious, man. Even with all that I do say, and praise God for you, a church that has an appetite for the word of God, and, and you guys do good, <laughs> uh, eating what's served and, and acting halfway excited about it, thank you for that. Uh, but man, there's always, there's, there's always more courses that could have been brought out. God's word is so rich and so full. So that's, whew, all right, back on track before I, I <clears throat> go back in the kitchen and start cooking something else. Uh, <clears throat> so ways of sin is death. God wants us to walk in life. Let me read you this, Romans 6, 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Let me read you this. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins before Christ. So part of the premise that I want to lay out for you is that the resurrection power of God, like the hope that we have as a result of Christ rising from the grave, is not just the future hope. Okay? There's the, the, the Bible talks about the power of God, that we have the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead at work within us right now. And that's, that's part of why I read you Romans 6. Let me do it again now that I've said that. We've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection power of Christ in us is not just for a future promise of a physical resurrection one day where we're going to follow in the footsteps that he took, right? Because that is the teaching of the scripture that whether you die or God comes and gets us, our, our final state is a glorified new body, a resurrected body just like Jesus. Basically, he's the first, he went first to show us what our eternal destiny is going to be. Aren't you glad? I'm excited. Amen. But it's not just for that. It's not just for the future. Part of what's going on here, part of why resurrection power, the power of the Spirit, now dwells in God's people so that we can walk in newness of life. It's interesting. Let me ask you this. I want you to think about it for a second. Really, really come up with an answer in your mind, okay? I just read you this story, First King, or, uh, 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. I'm going to ask you this. Who do you think 
is the hero of the story. I want you to think about that a second. The story of the healing of Naaman. Who's the hero of the story? Now let's test our bravery. Does anyone in here think Naaman is the hero of the story? Raise your hand. None of you are going to raise your hand about anything. All right, I'll just tell you. Thanks for your honesty. (laughs) Bro, there's no way. Uh, Hallelujah. Then I'll say it this way. I think it's very possible you could, you could read this and think Naaman is the hero of the story. I think it's very possible you could read this and think Elisha is the hero of the story. I think the little girl unnamed is the hero of the story. And the Bible, the Bible it be doing that to us, doesn't it? <laughs> I think the little girl that they didn't even say her name is really the hero of this story. What am I saying? She illustrates for us very well how to avoid one of the ways that the past can rob us of the ability to rejoice in a risen Savior. Part of why I went to those lengths to lay out for you the idea that resurrection power is not just for our full and final state is because what happens to Naaman is a picture of, first of all, being born again. He dips down in the Jordan seven times. What's the description? He comes up and his skin's like what? Like a baby's skin. An echo then of how in the New Testament we're going to hear that you've got to be born again to come to God. Amen? But what else? We also know that Naaman, with that leprosy, was a dead man walking. Goes down in the Jordan seven times. Now he comes up, a living man. There's, there's resurrection in that as well. And to what? Was that the end? Is that the end of Naaman's story? Boom, he gets a fiery chariot to, chariot to heaven too, like Elijah? No. He's raised to what? Newness of life. He's raised to what? Humility instead of pride. And the Bible goes on to lay out for us some of what that ends up meaning. It means a lot. But this little girl illustrates for us very well how to avoid one of the ways the past can rob us of the ability to rejoice in the risen Savior. One of the ways the past can rob you of the ability to live with a heart ablaze with passion, thankfulness, gratitude for God is when sins are committed against you. When sins are committed against you, oftentimes that can make your heart hard and bitter. I think this little girl is an incredible Christ-like example of, by the power of God, that not happening. Why do I say that? Well, first, let's think about this. This little girl didn't even have what we have today. So if we're going to work we're going to work forward and think about, I hope you are, the application of this in your own heart and life. This little girl didn't have the resurrection to look to, to see how much there is an actual reality of, of, of God's power, of God's faithfulness, right? The things that can keep us out of feeling like <clears throat> we have to keep the score even by holding bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. Do with that what you will. Hopefully receive it because it's true about us sometimes, right? That what God said he'll do, he'll do. He's fully just and he's powerful enough to do all that he said. She didn't even have the resurrection to look to. She, she did have the exodus from Egypt, where this falls in the timeline. She had the rest of Israel's history up to that point. So she knew, obviously, of God's faithfulness. And <clears throat> she obviously had enough faith to believe that this prophet in Samaria could heal leprosy, right? So she knew of God's power. It's amazing to me 
that this is her response as she hears, to make sure we remember and understand, why is she in Naaman's house? Man, because they went and stole her from her people, from her parents. I mean, think about how this plays out. Think about her parents, if they're still alive after the raid. Think about how they would grapple with God about the reality of their kidnapped daughter. Now a servant in the general of the opposing army's home. And they may not even know these details. All they know is their daughter was taken by an invading army. What, what kind of imagine, what, what, let your imagination move a little bit to what the wrestling, their wrestling with God would be like. Let yourself imagine a little bit the, the position of this little girl taken from her family, taken to a foreign land to be the servant of the wife of the general of the army that took you? What would you expect her attitude towards God to be? What would you expect her faith to be about God's goodness or his trustworthiness in the midst of that situation? And yet, what do we find? And and what would you expect her attitude to be towards her captors? And yet, what do we see? We see that God was working some things in all of this that none of them could have seen. And perhaps, somehow, in God's grace, even with not even half the examples we have of being able to trust this principle, this little girl understood the sovereignty and the goodness and the power of God. Enough that she was not embittered by her position. She was not embittered by what had happened to her. The sins committed against her did not come to the point of her hardening her heart towards her captors. I mean, Put yourself in that picture. Be the little girl for a minute and hear about Naaman's leprosy and then let's just play a game. What would your response be? I can be honest. It probably wouldn't be, oh, you know know what I wish? I wish he would go see the prophet from my people that you stole me from. I wish wish he would go see that prophet because I think that prophet could heal him. That probably would not be my response. My response would probably be like, get him, God. Make the leprosy go faster till his nose rots and falls off of his face. Oh, I'm the only one? Okay. Sure thing. Come on now. If it, look, if, it, if this little girl, a Christ-like archetype, I'm going to go that far, and I'm totally fine with it. Come argue with me about it later. This little girl, greatly sinned against, man, with this level of mercy and forgive, I, the, the echo of forgive them for they know not what they do just rings through the account of this little girl caring about Naaman's leprosy and speaking up and saying, there's a prophet in Samaria of my people that would heal that. Clearly, the sins committed against her had not had the effect that they oftentimes have. A fossilizing of the heart And friends, we need to know how absolutely crucial it is that we're honest about any fossilization that's happened in our own hearts about sins committed against us. And in no case from, I feel like in our current climate, I have to stop and give this caveat. It should be self-explanatory. In no way what I'm doing here is advocating for staying in abusive situations or, or, or ignoring abuse or, or, or that forgiveness means staying in situations where someone's continually being harmed. But this, this was, this was, there was no option in this little girl's case 
It was what it was. She was a captor of a foreign army. There, there was no, well, let's make a choice about whether we're going to stay in this abusive situation or not. You understand. She got stole and taken to a, foreign, to a foreign land. So she had to figure out how to bear up under the reality of what her circumstance was in that moment. And by God's grace, she wasn't bitter. By God's grace, she didn't start praying imprecatory prayers. <laughs> saying, Lord, kill this guy with that leprosy. Ha! There was still, there was a tenderness here. I'm so thankful for that. Can we be honest about how much sins committed against us can rob us of the potential of rejoicing in our risen Savior, can blind us sometimes from the beauty of what God has done when our focus is too much on the ways we've been harmed and hurt, when we've not been able to look to the sovereignty of God, look to accounts like this, look to the other times in our life where it's, it's evident that even in times when the situation was not what we would prefer it to be, that in all those times, God always is and always was working. Praise God for this little girl and the lesson she has for us. Now, let's, let's switch our, our view to Naaman. Because another potential way that the past hinders us from rejoicing in God's goodness, my first premise is, we're looking at the past. How does the past get in the way of us living as a people whose hearts are ablaze, rejoicing in our risen Savior. The past is the big premise, subheading one. Okay, for those of you who like to diagram stuff, I'll, I'll join the nerd patrol here for a minute. Let's diagram this, okay? Premise one is sins committed against us. Where's another way that the past gets in the way is a hurdle? Well, of course, friends, it's sins that we've committed. It's sins that we've committed. And, and, and that could almost split into two then subheadings. There's two ways that can really manifest. The first is in condemnation. That we're aware of sins we've committed, and then we struggle to believe we are worthy of God's love or God's power in our life. That's one way. The Bible says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not God's will for us to live up under the weight of condemnation, but that doesn't mean sometimes that terrible tactic of the enemy doesn't work. Sometimes rejoicing and the joy that we should have in the fact that we have a risen Savior and all that that means, sometimes it's stolen because we end up in a place of believing the lie that our sin, our failures, our shortcomings equates to a lack of worthiness on our part to approach God or a lack of love and willingness for him to receive us. Is that true or that false? Sometimes condemnation gets us. Okay, that's one way. Um, there may have been some of that in there, but it's not really in view very much. So the, with Naaman, the other way that it happens, because that's the problem. You, you know, <laughs> we're all trying to deal with sin, you understand. There's really two ways that, that you deal with sin aside from the gospel. The gospel is the only real way sin can actually be dealt with. But our kind of futile little attempts go one of two ways. One, we go into condemnation, which then oftentimes ends up into some kind of justification. We try to find some safe place to stand where we don't just crumble under the weight of that. Sometimes that then turns it around and, and it begins, becomes about, about blaming others to try to, at least if I can see somebody as bad as me, I won't feel that bad. Well, nobody's perfect, right? Or it helps a whole lot then if I can find someone that's worse than me because then I at least just don't have to feel as bad about myself. That's all pitiful. It doesn't lead to real freedom. It's gross, okay? 
But the other way, and that, you know, we could talk a lot more about how that goes bad. But the other way that our sin from the past, uh, one of the ways we we deal with it is, is pride. Thinking that we're pretty good. Normally better than others. And we see that even, there's clues all through this. The fact that Naaman rolls up to Elisha's house at the beginning with a bunch of horses and chariots. That's a sign of power, prestige. He shows up with uh, animals full of expensive things to show, not only am I powerful, not only am I a military leader, not only am I well-respected among my people, I got money. Right? Power, I've got money. There's pride here. There's self-righteousness. And friends, whether, whether sin from our past gets in the way of us, I'm talking about sins we commit, whether it gets in our way most vibrantly through condemnation or through, or through the, the pride of basically feeling like we don't have a whole lot of sin, either way, I would say the self-righteousness side of that is the most tone-deaf, almost terrible manifestation of sin possible by humans. Because ultimately what you're saying is, I, I'm taking a sober look at myself, my thoughts, words, and deeds, basically feel like I could stand before God on my own two feet and say, yep, I deserve to be here. Oh, no. Mm-mm. And it very much seemed like Naaman, you know, he was already automatically offended when Elisha didn't come out his, on his own. Did you catch that? I thought, it, well, I thought the prophet would come out himself and wave his hand around and he would heal the leper, but he, he, did, he didn't even come see me. He sent his servant out. And then tells me to go dip in the Jordan. The Jordan is, look, look. as far as the information, Naaman's correct. The waters of Damascus were better. The Jordan's not a great river. It's kind of small, kind of muddy. Not a great water source, really. And that was kind of a, a, a point of disdain by other countries, you know, because it plays so prominently uh, in terms of Israel's history and all that. But in any case, the point is, uh, he's offended. He's obviously the way Naaman's sin from the past is getting in the way for him and the way sometimes it gets in the way for us is pride. Satan will take you any way he can get you. He can get you through condemnation and drag you away from the joy that the Lord means for you to have in him. He'll take you that way. If he can pull you over into pride. And here's what's so crazy. Sometimes the pride one comes through the route of condemnation. Just like I was trying to tell you before. It's like, ooh, I feel bad. I see that I'm not doing good. Instead of running to the gospel, instead of running to the, the, the free offer of confessing our sin and being forgiven by mercy, we go down the condemnation chute and it's like, ooh, how do I get out of here? Now, now I got to try to build myself up somehow and, and, and myself con- make, convince me somehow that I'm, I'm not as bad as I look. So I'm, I'm going to look around and start seeing if there's other people worse than me. And, and, then, and then pride is like the way we try to climb back out of that. But it's just another pit that we fall into. All of our futile efforts to deal with the sin issue, to deal with guilt, man, they fall way short. And they absolutely keep us away from the full expression of rejoicing in a risen Savior. They get in the way. 10 through 14 in... in uh, in 2 Kings 5, let me just read you that again. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious, went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to see me. Stand and call in the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. The servant came near, spoke to him, said, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing? Would you 
not have done it. How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down, dips himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Friends, what I want you to see here is that the greater miracle that we witness in reading this, the greatest miracle we read here, is not the curing of Naaman's leprosy. It's the curing of his pride. Which is ultimately part of the same issue we're dealing with. What Naaman needed more than cured leprosy was a cured heart. And he was going to have to come to God on God's terms to get it. You hear in a gospel echo, friends, we're going to have to come to God on God's terms to get the deliverance, to get the healing that we really need. And how, what are God's terms? Thankfully, uh, dipping in the Jordan seven times didn't stick, right? <laughs> Thankfully, that's not what all of us need to do. God has made plain. If we will come before him, if we'll confess that we are sinners that need a savior and ask him to save us, the Bible says he'll do it. Our equivalent of humbling ourselves and getting in the Jordan and dipping down seven times, realizing I'm not in control here. Ooh, can you imagine? The general, a highly decorated, rich general had to come to the conclusion, I'm not in control of this situation. Anybody else had to grapple with that reality? Because <laughs> none of us are, are rich generals of ancient armies, but, oh, we're still prideful. Oh, we still live with this fantasy that we're in control. Silly us. Romans 8. I'm going to read this and then, then we're done. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But the, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Friends, what I'm trying to say to you is, we rejoice in a risen Savior for many reasons. One of the reasons is that the fact that we have a risen Savior, it frees us from all of the ways that the past can haunt us, all the ways that the past can hold us down. And it's not just, when we're talking about resurrection power, I want you to understand that's not just for the future. That's what I just read you there. It, it's meant for that power to be at work in us now so that we can walk not according to the deeds of the flesh, not according to trying to justify ourselves. We can walk in newness of life. Naaman got born again in the Jordan and, and to some degree there, there was resurrection power in there too. The dead man walking now could go from there and, and walk without that hanging over him. Amen. Friends, that's the hope that I have for us. I hope that we will be free from the specters of the past, free from the ways that we try to solve guilt apart from Christ's gospel and apart from the truth that Jesus rose from the grave. If we lean into that, we will be able to rejoice in a risen Savior. We will be able to walk, to live, to breathe, and to move with hearts that are actually ablaze in thankfulness that we've been rescued 
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you so much for all that you've shown us in your word today. God, thank you so much for that little girl. Thank you for the corrective word that her story speaks to us. We can't, we can't get away from it. Lord, I don't want to. But any of us even that would try to squirm out of that, there's just no way. Thank you. Thank you for a, a very clear picture of what trust in you looks like, even in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. In circumstances where for us to look around with our natural eyes, left and right, up and down, back and forward, we're looking everywhere and we just, we just can't see how possibly all that's happening lines up with your faithfulness, your power, your goodness. And when we're in those situations and we're looking back and we're assessing things that have happened in the past, places where we've messed up and caused pain, places where others have sinned against us and caused us pain, and we, even, with a, even with hindsight, we still can't see with our eyes how you were working for our good, how you had a plan, how you were never abandoning us, Lord. I ask you to help us. Help us to come to a place of trust that supersedes what we can see. Help us truly actually walk by faith and, and not by sight. Help us not to be a people embittered by the infractions and the sins that those near us cause, Lord. Help us, Father, too. Walk in a spirit of forgiveness and mercy and great grace because that is absolutely the way that you have walked towards us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Lord. To have hearts full of genuine passion for your name. Thank you, Lord. You don't want us to live some kind of lackluster, half-hearted existence on this earth. But you invite us to consider all of the reasons why. It is not improper, but it is always and totally right for us to be excited about who you are and what you're doing, what you've done. Thank you so much. We love you and we worship you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give, or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.